There's a particular phrase that I'm prone to say, but it sometimes has a double meaning. That phrase is, live in the dream. I'm prone to use it in moments where life is unusually good. I feel positive and happy. And I'm trying in that statement to capture the fact that my present experience is far beyond what I deserve. I'm living the dream, like I'm literally living the dream. I remember Christmas mornings when our kids were little and they would come down and they'd see, you know, toys that they thought were amazing. They didn't know that most of them were used. They didn't care. All they knew was this was amazing. I remember sitting around the Christmas tree, hugging on my kids and thinking, this is amazing. I'm living the dream. I've also used it for moments that are different than that. A few weeks ago, I talked about being the parents of twins. <laughs> and we dreamed of having children. It's a funny story how the Lord while in seminary, gave us twins, I think in part to give me a little bit of a little bit of a safety belt to kind of hold me in my place and keep me focused on my family. I'm thankful for that as a young pastor. But I remember walking our kids around in a in a stroller and pushing them around, and people would see the haggard look on our face, and they'd say, "How you doing?" And I'd say, "Living the dream." because I am living the dream. Or I thought about what pastoral ministry would be like, felt a call to ministry at age 10, went off to seminary, got planted in my first church, and it wasn't too long until I realized that, I mean, this is really awesome, it's also really hard. People are difficult, and they have really complicated issues, we all do, and they make really big mistakes, and if you care and you wanna live life, like you can't stay emotionally distant. And In moments where I've probably shown it on my face, someone's asked me, how you doing, pastor? And my answer has sometimes been, living the dream. And in both situations, both with twins and with pastoral ministry, what I'm actually doing is, I'm not lying, I'm, I'm living the dream. But what I'm trying to do is to remind my heart, Mark, this was the dream. Like, this is what you signed up for. This is awesome. It's hard, but you're living the dream. In this way, living the dream is both a celebration and it's also an anticipation. I celebrate what is amazing and I'm also anticipating the need for my heart to be readjusted. Living the dream looks backwards. Living the dream looks forward. So when you look at Psalm 126, it's hard to miss the word dream in the first verse and all of the connections to joy and gladness. Look at it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Then notice 
the pivot. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He goes out, he who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a short little text. It's kind of complicated. It's super hopeful. It's another psalm of ascent. It was sung as God's people went up to the city of Jerusalem for festival or for worship. And these psalms were designed, just to remind you, to be a reorientation, a a moment of reflection of the past and the future. Remember last week we looked at Psalm 124, if it was not the Lord who had been on our side. This week, the central phrase is found in verse three, and it serves as the pivot from the first part of the psalm to the second part of the psalm. It serves as the pivot from celebration to anticipation. The phrase is, we are glad. Or, as it's translated in the message, we are one happy people. And again, I think this could be true and also formative. This could be a statement to say, we're a happy people. Or it could be when you sense that people aren't super happy to say, hey, we are one happy people. It's when a parent says to their kids, we're going to have a great time. And then they're traveling to their family Christmas party and like, we are going to have a great time. <laughs> Everyone It's gonna be happy. Everyone is going to be happy. There's lots of different ways that you can say the same thing. You you, you understand what I'm saying here? So the issue that I wanna dial into today is the matter of joy. How do you you think about joy, especially during this time of year? And how does this psalm help us? How do you live the dream? Two things. This text helps us to see the importance of celebration and the importance of anticipation. Christians are one happy people. And we celebrate and we anticipate. Here's the first one, celebration. The text begins with a look backwards. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. This song was sung as the people of God made their way to Jerusalem in one of three festivals. There was this cycle to the worship life of the people of Israel. They sang it in Passover in the spring when they remembered their redemption from Egypt. They sang it in the summer at Pentecost when they celebrated God's constant provision at harvest And they celebrated in the Feast of the Tabernacles in the fall, where they were reminded that God had been with his people all the way through their wilderness wanderings. So there's this rhythm of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And these feasts were important. They, like you and me, know that there are important lessons to remember from the past, But one of the ways that they kept those lessons 
in the forefront of their mind and hearts was the regular and full participation in these annual rituals. These festivals that marked their year gave them anchor points to be reminded about what they know to be true. This is one of the reasons that we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent during Advent. Because Advent, or the Christmas season, is itself a tradition. It's a time for reflection. You'll do some things in the context of family gatherings that you've been doing for years. And you do them not because they're innovative, you do them because they're old. You do them because they're familiar. You do them because there's a history connected to them. And these regular rhythms are important, especially in the constant flurry of hurry and activity that mark our lives so much of the year. It's good to stop and to reconnect on things that have been with us for a long time and to remind us of some bigger realities that are underneath our lives. Some of you are here today and you're trying to figure out those realities. You're not yet a Christian and you feel like something's missing in your life and you're searching. You're maybe trying to find some kind of certainty in a world that's become recently very unsettled. And you're here, or you're listening, and I just wanna commend you, you've made a great choice. Because the rhythm of the regular gathering of the Lord's people on Sunday is one of those rituals, it's one of those traditions that help to proclaim truths that are really, really important. Others of us are Christians and Here we are, it's another Saturday, it's a part of the regular rhythm of life, as it should be if you're a follower of Jesus. And you're here, why? To learn, to grow, to be convicted, to connect with other believers. But you're also here to be reminded of particular truths that changed your life. And I wanna encourage you, don't diminish regular spiritual traditions. We need daily and weekly and monthly and yearly rhythms that aren't flashy, they're not quick fixes, and sometimes we can be too quick to justify neglecting them. We see here when, when, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. These when moments are really important to your joy. I. I can almost guarantee you that if you're a Christian and you stop attending worship services, your joy is going to tank. You may feel a little more rested. You may feel a little more pleased. You may know a little more what's going on in the world because you've watched the news on Sunday morning. You may be up to date on all the sports channels that you can watch, but your joy, Christian, will begin to tank. The time that you need to be gathering with the Lord's people is the time that you don't feel like gathering with the Lord's people. You can think of it like a birthday party. I mean, do you like to go to every birthday party? And there's some you're like, oh, that's gonna be awesome, and others you're like, do we have to go? And it's sort of an odd tradition, isn't it, that we gather someone and in order to make them feel special, we sing at them, right? Why don't you stand on this chair in this Mexican restaurant and let's all sing to you. 
This will be amazing. You'll feel really loved. And put a big hat on, right? Why? Why do we do that? Because there's something important about the moment that you're not only honoring the person, but isn't it true that you come away from those gatherings and you're more reminded why that person is special? Those are the memories that you'll recall when that person isn't there or moved. You see, this is the kind of rhythm that's happening in Psalm 126. It looks back to something glorious, something that they knew, but they needed to remember. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, you hear the word fortune, you may think about money or wealth, and that could be the meaning in one sense, but the Hebrew word indicates something more broadly. To think of it as a way of life or the general conditions of my life. The idea is that the Lord restored my life. The Lord helped me. The Lord gave me grace. Some people think that this psalm particularly is in reference to the regathering of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. That could be true. Others think it's just a psalm that's designed to remind people of God's previous help in their history. Regardless, the point is the same. What's happening here is the psalmist is looking back and rehearsing a time when the blessing of God or the fulfillment of God's plan was so incredible, it seemed like they were living the dream. Whatever it was, it seemed too good to be true. Let me give you an example of this in the New Testament. The first is from Acts 12. It's a dark moment. Peter is imprisoned by Herod, and Herod has just executed James, the brother of John. The Jews loved it that Herod executed James, so Herod had Peter in prison, and all of God's people knew what was gonna go down. Peter was gonna be killed too. In the middle of the night, Peter is awakened by an angel who miraculously leads him out of the prison. I love how the Bible says this. The angel hit him in the side and said, get up. <laughs> There's no, Peter, it's an angel. Get up. Peter gets up, walks out of the prison. Listen to Acts 12, 9. He went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. That's the idea. It's such a miraculous deliverance that Peter wondered, is this a dream? From a spiritual standpoint, listen to Ephesians chapter three and verse 20, when we think about the beauty of God's grace. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly that, than what we ask or think, dream. According to the power he works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The idea in this text is whatever's happening is something that is hard to believe because it is wonderful and amazing. If you have put your trust in Christ, you need not wonder if you have any experience like that. You do. It was the moment when God set his love and affection on you, forgave you of your sins, 
and declared you to be righteous. Christian, you're living the dream. The text continues. What happens? Verse two, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. I love this. Their mouth was filled with laughter. They're not just chuckling. This is a a full belly laugh moment. Can you think of a time in your life when you've had sorrow and then you're gathered with a group of friends or maybe some other situation and someone said something funny and you laughed so hard and then you said, man, it's good to laugh. That's what he's talking about. Our tongue with shouts of joy. This is probably an expression of their singing The people of God are marveling at God's goodness to them and they broke out in singing and spontaneous praise. Maybe a a statement like, man, isn't God good? Can you believe this? He's been so faithful. And here's my question for you who are Christians. How long has it been since those words have come out of your mouth? How long has it been since you have said, can you believe this? God is so faithful. Instead, some of us are like, can you believe this? They're so mean. Can you believe this? They're not coming over for two hours. They told us they'd be here at noon. Like for real, that's what we get mad about. So this is an important psalm because it helps to temper what it is that we get joy from. Sometimes joy happens because we can't help ourselves, but at other times, I think more often, joy is a byproduct of what we know is true, but we need to rehearse it. Next, the text says, they said among the nations, this is being said about them, the Lord has done great things for them. So it's as though people around them see their lives and they they realize, wow, God has been very kind to you. And then the psalm reaches its conclusion in verse three. Here's the pivot. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now when you hear verse three, or if you look at it in your Bible, the question is, what word stands out? Is it the Lord has done great things for us, or is it the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad? Because a key to joy for the Christian is the connection between joy and the source of it. Some of you don't have joy because it's in the wrong thing. You you want to be joyful, but you're trying to pull joy from something that's not meant to create joy in you. The Lord has done great things for us. Verse one, the Lord restored their fortunes. Eugene Peterson says this, we cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. Yet there is something we can do. Listen, we can decide to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. We can decide to live in the environment of a living God and not 
our own dying selves. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos which greedily grab. So how do we find joy? I wanna help you. It involves, church, celebrating the right thing. Again, some of us are lacking joy because we're not celebrating the right thing. We're not looking at the right resource. It was the Lord who restored their lives. It was the Lord who did great things. When God's people celebrated the Lord, it led them to joy. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. However, most of us hear the word always. We don't hear rejoice in the Lord always. The conclusion of the psalmist is the conclusion that we should come to, that some of you need to come to today. Draw a line in the sand and say, the Lord has done great things for us. Can I just encourage you during this holiday season, during this time of Advent, could I maybe just focus your mind and heart for the next week or the next couple of weeks on not just what are you happy about, but what are you happy in the Lord about? Celebrate. Celebration has a way to tune our hearts to emphasize the things that we know we should be joyful in, but celebration facilitates joy as we rehearse all of the great things the Lord has done. Here's the second thing, and it's, it's a contrast of sorts to the first point, which is this issue of anticipation. So, while God's people are called to celebrate, it doesn't stop there. The celebration serves to help them when it's hard to celebrate. The rest of this text is about the fact that the restoration of their fortunes in the past doesn't seem to be presently true. So he's celebrating while the previous amazing works of God are known in the immediate moment, it seems as though those days are long gone. So there are times when rehearsing God's past provision seems to be really far away from our present experience. So I am sure that they, like you and me, made trips. They came to worship on Sunday. They went to their pilgrimage events with a deep sense of disappointment, they were living in the gaps. There's a sense that they needed help. Because most of God's delivering moments, they take place in short little situations and we live the rest of our lives in light of those and looking forward to future restoration or deliverance moments. So here we, during this time of year, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation, and we are waiting for his consummation, his return, and so here we are in the middle, celebrating God's past events, looking forward to future events, and meanwhile, life continues to carry on with all of its hardships and pains and difficulty and sort of joy-sucking moments. So what do we do with that? Well, look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So what's really interesting, this is a psalm of lament, or, 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 of ascent, but it's also a psalm of lament. 
A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. You talk to God in your pain because your pain causes you to A, lose your joy, and B, lose your confidence that God is really going to be faithful. And so by lamenting, you're reminded of what you know to be true. It acknowledges the pain of life while looking to God for help. That's why this psalm is complicated. There's so much here in just six verses. On the one hand, he's celebrating, 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 and then immediately he turns and he goes to lament. He's like, God, you, you, you restored our fortunes. And then he says, God, will you restore our fortune? God, you've been so helpful. And then he says, God, will you help us now? He uses an illustration. He describes it like streams in the Negev. Streams in the Negev. The Negev was an arid area in southern Israel and it featured dried up streams, like a desert. And then when infrequent rains appeared, these dry riverbeds would flow with water and the seeds hidden in the rocks and just under the soil that were there all the time suddenly engaged with the new water and beautiful flowers would bloom all throughout the Negev Valley along those streams. We don't have time for you to do it this morning, but if you're super, super curious, you have pastoral permission to pull out your phone and type in, in Google, flowers in the Negev, and you'll see it. These beautiful flowers that just emerge from these troughs of water. And so the idea is this unbelievable bounty of beauty that suddenly emerges because a new resource has been brought into their desert experience. What a picture of what God's people are asking him to do. In fact, a dry stream bed in the Negev is a great description for how some of you feel right now. There's no life, it feels harsh, and as you look up towards the fountainhead of where the stream will come from, it doesn't look like there's much coming down anytime soon. But what you need to know is just under the soil are little seeds in your life that when they encounter the grace of God, they begin to produce something beautiful. In fact, for some of you, it's actually happening right now. Because God knew when you woke up this morning and your heart was dry and you were like, I don't even know if I can go to church and yet you came and here am I talking about a text that perfectly pictures where you are at in your life right now and the fact that you're listening and hearing and a little glimmer of hope that God is gonna help you is a sign that the stream has started to flow through the Negev again. There are long stretches of barrenness where God seems distant and then suddenly he invades our lives with surprising grace. You're traveling into work and maybe on the radio or a song pops up on your playlist and it's just the perfect song at just the right moment. Or a friend gives you a word of encouragement and you just can't even believe it. Or Somebody quotes a scripture, and just that morning you were in that scripture. Friend, those things are not by accident. Those are beautiful moments of God adding grace into your dry life. 
And of course, the greatest example of this invasion of grace comes to us through the cross and the empty tomb. With, with Psalm 26, 126 in the background, listen to Ephesians 2 and to what Paul says. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, here comes the stream, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see it? Perseverance in the Christian life comes as we celebrate this truth and we apply it when the stream beds are dry. Anticipation. And this text means that I can look at the painful moments of my life differently to ask myself, what do I see? Do I just see dry, desert, harsh, no water, no flower? Or do I see a stream bed that if it just got a little bit of God's grace in it, it would blossom with beauty? Look at verses five and six. Same idea, different metaphor. He uses a farming metaphor. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The metaphor here is, it's really moving to me. Because I'm thinking of people in our own church who recently have lost loved ones or are walking through difficulties, and it describes those tears as seeds that are being sown. It says, those who sow in tears, meaning the grief, the pain of life as someone's walking along the pathway of their existence on earth as a follower of Jesus and they're planting seeds. God, I'm so lonely. I really miss my spouse. God, what are we gonna do about this cancer? Why is there so much conflict? God, what's gonna happen with my work? God, I feel so misunderstood. I'm struggling with my fear and anxiety. And these are people who are living in a world filled with brokenness and in their tears, what they're doing is they're sowing. They're sowing. And if you sow, you sow for the purpose of a future harvest. And what an image it is that he who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, so he's sowing, sowing, sowing. It says he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Listen, I can tell you by personal experience the hardships in my life, in my family's life, 
Things that I thought, there is no way God is ever gonna use this. This is a disaster. I'm not gonna recover from this. Emotions that feel so strong, so painful, that the clouded sense of God's goodness means that I wonder how in the world are we gonna make it? I'm telling you now, five years, six years, 10 years, 15 years hence from those, it's amazing how those seeds sown in tears have reaped a harvest field of God's bounty and goodness. And I'm just telling you, friend, if you're today coming and you have tears and sorrow, the Bible tells us you can celebrate the goodness of God. You should do that. And you can also anticipate that God is going to be faithful and good. The psalmist begs the question, do we really think that God is gonna change who he is from the past to the future? And the answer is, of course he's not. Isn't it interesting, and I think this is really important, that faithful following of Jesus involves a lot of laughter and a lot of lament. You need to know how to do both. You need to laugh and be filled with joy and celebrate because God is so good and you need to know how to cry your eyes out because the world is broken and we want Jesus to come back and life is really hard and good Christians know how to both laugh and they know how to lament. And sometimes we bounce back and forth in the, in the period of a few moments or hours or weeks or days and what this psalmist shows us is that we can live on God's grace in the past and we can also live on God's grace in the future. We can celebrate. None of this would have happened if the Lord hadn't been with us. And we can celebrate. Nothing's gonna happen if the Lord isn't with me. We can celebrate that God has, God has been faithful and kind, we can celebrate God is going to be faithful and kind. So do you know what this means? Let me bring this text to some very specific applications. First, if you're a Christian, you need, I need, we need to regularly celebrate God's grace to us through the gospel and to rehearse it over and over and over and over. And we need to rehearse it not because it's new, but we need to rehearse it because we need to apply it in new ways. Secondly, don't neglect rehearsing God's provision in the past. Don't neglect those traditions, the moment when you pray around a meal or ask people, what are you thankful for? Little kids may roll their eyes. Can we just get to the food and presents? Those things aren't gonna matter in 10 years. What's gonna matter is this moment where they see a grandma, a grandpa, a mom or a dad or a group of people who center their lives on something that really matters. And when you have that opportunity, focus your gratitude on the Lord. It's the Lord who's been with us. We're not just thankful for the food. We're thankful that without God, we don't have any food. Third, I want you to realize that the Christian life involves both tears and laughter, and I want you to learn how to embrace both of them in faith. Some of you need 
to laugh your guts out about how amazing God is to you. So find someone who will increase and elevate your joy. Some of you need, you, you, you've got a PhD on seeing things negatively, awesome. What you need to do is it's time for you to laugh in the Lord. And others, you, you need to be a little more serious about how hard life is and not be so scared of being honest that this is really challenging. And finally, I love this text because it reminds me that we live by faith through our tears. And we know that they're not wasted. In fact, in the hands of God, our tears are the seeds that are being planted for a harvest of joy. Again, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, the joy that develops in the Christian way of discipleship is an overflow that comes from feeling good, not about yourself, but about God. So whether it's tears or laughter, the hope of Psalm 126 is that because of who God is, no matter what happens, whether we're laughing or crying, we can say, I'm living the dream. I, I'm living the dream. Oh Lord, change, we pray, our understanding of joy. Change, I pray, the application of it. And for some people, Lord, who are here today, this message is just designed to get them through another seven days. And we pray that you would use your word to accomplish that end. We thank you for the poignancy of Psalm 126. It speaks right in the world, into the world that we live. And so, Lord, we come both with joy and sorrow, with laughter and lament. We thank you that you allow us to come to you so that we can know who you are and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.